Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's word. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again. Oh yeah. <laughs> Today's scripture reading is taken from 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 12 through to chapter 6, verse 2. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that, ho that, those who leave, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. You may be seated. Well, I hope I can speak as well as that young lad. Um, and I have this pulpit to hide my knees. You'll, you'll notice he was standing out here and we saw his knees and they were good. Well, good morning, Thornhill Baptist Church. It has been a long time since I have stood up here. It hasn't been that long since I've sat down there, but it has been a long time since I have stood up here. And I am very grateful for this opportunity and I count it a privilege and an honor to be here this morning to speak the word of God to you. I want to especially thank Ken. Uh, the pulpit is, and the proclamation of God's word from the pulpit is central to what we do as a church. It's the most important thing we do. And therefore, every pastor needs to be very cautious about who they allow to come up here and speak. So I'm very thankful and appreciative of the confidence that Ken has placed within me. As Ken mentioned, I uh, grew up in this church, and I'll go back even farther. I was literally born into this church. My uh, parents, Helmut and Katie Klukas, uh, were members here before I was born. They were members here since the beginning. Uh, my brother, Art, has been here uh, since the beginning of this church. I have other relatives still here as well. My cousin, Irene. Happy birthday, Irene. 
And uh, I have some second cousins, Frank Isler up there, Doris Swanberg. I'm not sure if she's here this morning. And so it's good to be home. I still consider Thornhill Baptist Church to be my home. But I do bring you greetings from the church that I attend now in Kelowna Baptist Church, uh, in Kelowna, which is Epic City Church. And our pastor, Monty Scott, who knows that I'm here this morning and preaching, uh, sends you his greetings. And as Ken mentioned, we are one church. And so I think it's important that when we travel and when we attend elsewhere, that we bring greetings, something we used to do a lot in the old days. So consider yourself greeted from my church, as well as from my family. My wife, Deborah, sends her greetings. Many of you will remember her. Our three children, uh, Belinda, Ethan, and Owen. For those of you who know me, and maybe a little bit of catch-up, they're all grown up now. Belinda is 23 and is actually getting married in two weeks from yesterday. Uh, So we've got a a whole lot to do in the next couple of weeks. And uh, those of you who have gone through that experience of marrying off your kids know what I'm talking about. Perhaps the most traumatic thing so far has been the obligatory slideshow. You you know those in, in the wedding reception? where they show a slideshow of the newlyweds, you know, when they were cute little toddlers and kids, and you show some video. Well, I've spent literally hours and hours and hours in the last month going through old family video and uh, pictures, and uh, that can be a little bit traumatic. Uh, For the one thing, I don't look like I looked like 23 years ago. Um, It's also traumatic because my wife is sitting beside me, bawling her eyes out, going, I want my babies back, they're so cute, I want my babies back. And I'm thinking, no, I don't miss the 2 a.m. crying at all. I do miss how little they ate then compared to what they eat now. So Belinda's getting married in two weeks. Uh, She's been living in Vancouver, actually, for about a year and a half now and working there. Our two sons, Ethan and Owen, are 21 and 18. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, They're both still in university, still living with us, so we're not quite empty nesters yet. Whenever I come back to this church... uh, when I'm visiting Calgary, visiting my folks and family, I am always flooded with all sorts of memories. Uh, and all sorts of things come to mind. I remember running around as a, as a little kid in those speaker rooms back there after the service, before the service, sometimes during the service, well, not during the service. Uh, Frank Isler and Folker Tsiprich and I, we, well, maybe not Folker, he was always a good one. Frank and I, we'd be running around back there uh, running from Hugo Numri, who was always trying to keep us kids under control as the, as the head usher. And by the way, it was always Frank's fault. He was the ringleader. I remember uh, learning trumpet here in the brass band. Uh, one day, horse laser. When I was in grade two. My brother brought me to... I didn't know what to do. My dad said, you're going to brass band. So I went to brass band. Horse laser took me into a Sunday school room there, put a trumpet in front of my face and said, okay, now spit. And so I spit and nothing came out. But I spent years playing in the brass band here. Maybe some more somber memories as well. Um, Many funerals that we had here. All of my parents, or pardon me, my parents, my grandparents, all of their funerals were here. My sister's funeral was here. But some happy memories as well. My wedding reception in the basement. I remember when we built the addition here, I think it was about 1980. One of my most vivid memories was Ron Betcher slipping on the joists and falling through the ceiling, getting wedged between the joists. You remember that, Ron? Painfully, yes. All sorts of memories. And so I'm very grateful for that, but I'm grateful most of all because this is where I learned about God. This is where God saved me. This is where I was taught the gospel. And for that, I'm so grateful, and I'm grateful that I have this church as a heritage and a legacy. 
So this morning, I want to I want to talk to you. When when Ken uh, gave me this opportunity, I knew right away what I wanted to talk to you about. It's a doctrine, and I use that word unapologetically. Doctrine is important. It's a doctrine that has become very, very important to me. In fact, critical to my understanding of the gospel. And the title of my sermon is called The Great Exchange. And I'll let you know what I mean by that um, as we go through. But I pray that this, this doctrine would be a balm to your soul, that it would be a comfort to your soul. And we're going to focus on one verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm glad that they read quite a bit because uh, there's, it's all relevant, it's all in context, but I'm going to really key in on 2 Corinthians 5.21. On October 31st, 1517, a Roman Catholic priest in the German town of Wittenberg posted an invitation to debate on the door of the town's castle church. Now, there was nothing particularly unusual about this. This was the accepted way that academics or professors would invite other professors to get together and debate. There was no email, there was no texting at that time. It wasn't an act of vandalism, it wasn't anything radical or weird. The church door actually served as a community bulletin board. Now, the priest did not intend that the 95 theses that he posted on that door would spark a controversy that would change the entire world. In fact, no one even showed up for the debate. But change the world he did. You see, someone copied down those 95 theses that he posted on that door, translated them from Latin to German. Latin is what the professors used, German's what everybody else used. And due to a brand new invention called the printing press, those 95 theses were distributed all over the country within a matter of only two weeks. And people all over the country started talking about them. The priest, as I'm sure many of you have already guessed, was Martin Luther. And the world-changing event he caused, the Protestant Reformation. So what were these 95 theses about? Well, they were, called something, they were about something called indulgences. The church was selling indulgences in order to raise money. People were told that they could release their relatives, their dead relatives from purgatory, simply by buying an indulgence. Luther had a problem with this. He didn't like the practice, and he especially disagreed with, what motiv uh, with the doctrine that supported it. And what motivated his disagreement was a discovery he had recently made in the book of Romans, in the Bible. You have to understand Luther, though. He had a sin problem. Same problem you and I have. We all have a sin problem. But Luther was absolutely obsessed with his sin. He saw sin in even the most trivial things. It's very likely that Luther suffered from a condition these days we call scrupulosity. Scrupulosity is, is an obsessive need to apologize or seek forgiveness for everything one does because you think that everything you do or say or think is wrong or, or sin. In fact, Luther would spend great... Uh, uh, great parts of his day, hours and hours and hours, confessing to his superiors. So much so that one got angry with him and exclaimed, Martin Luther, God is not angry with you, but rather you must be angry with God. But Luther knew that God was just, and that meant God was angry with Luther's sin, and he had to judge it. So Luther saw God only as an angry judge. But Luther knew the Bible. As a professor and as a priest, he had lectured on books in the Bible, such as Romans and Galatians. 
And in Romans, he pondered verses such as Romans 1, 16 to 17, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, which is a reference to Habakkuk 2.4 in the Old Testament. Luther, Luther struggled with this, the just shall live by faith. He could not square this phrase with the justice of God. But then one day Luther had a breakthrough. Let me read a passage to you from Luther's biography by Roland Bayton, probably Luther's most famous biographer. This is Luther speaking in his biography. Quote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly with me in punishing the unjust. My situation was just that. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered and I saw the connection, until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven." Unquote. What dawned on Luther was, and here I quote Dr. R.C. Sproul, that the divine righteousness of which Paul speaks is not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but the righteousness that God gives to us through faith. In Romans, Luther discovered the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And in particular, and this is an important verse in this message, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to those who have faith. And this doctrine set him free. The doctrine of justification and imputation of Christ's righteousness became the heart and the storm center of the Reformation. Luther said that, the ju that justification by faith alone in Christ alone is the article on which the church stands or falls. Now, unfortunately, the modern evangelical church has lost the urgency of this conviction. We rarely talk about justification by faith alone in Christ alone, let alone the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. And I think we do this to our own detriment. When we forget that part of the way we are justified is by having Christ's righteousness imputed to us, we lose a valuable means of grace and a powerful weapon against the wrong thinking that can cause us to be tormented by our sin. So my purpose here this morning is to dwell on this truth that those who have saving faith have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So let's turn to our, our scripture. If you have your Bibles, open it to 2 Corinthians 5, and I'm just going to read verse 21 again. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where it says, 
He made him, being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel, and justification in particular, in a nutshell. If you want one verse to sum up the entire gospel, this is a very good candidate. There are others, of course. What is justification? I've used that word a few times. Well, justification is a legal declaration by God regarding our status before him. It is a one-time and instantaneous event that occurs when we express faith in Christ. When God justifies us, he declares us not guilty and perfect in his sight. Now, does that second part of the last statement I just said maybe shock you a little bit or surprise you or make you a little uncomfortable? Perfect in his sight? Am I really perfect in God's sight right now? We are all very familiar with the part of justification in which we are forgiven for our sins because Jesus paid the penalty for those sins on the cross. This is obviously an important part of the gospel, and it rightly deserves all the attention that we give it. But many of us, and my, myself included, neglect the other part of our justification, that part that says we are perfect in his sight. And that is why I chose to speak on this verse here this morning. We need to recognize both parts of, the ju of justification for two reasons. Reason number one, we need to faithfully defend all of the true gospel. We need to faithfully defend all of the true gospel. Reason number two, we, we should look and rem remember this doctrine to derive all the comfort that is available to us in the gospel. Notice the two parts of justification in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The first part is, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. This is what theologians called expiation. Expiation. Expiation is spelled E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. Its root word is E-X, X. The same root word that we have in the word exit. Expiation means God takes our sins away from us. They go out of us. Just like when we go through an exit, we're leaving the building. How does God do this? Well, he doesn't do it by ignoring our sin or causing them somehow to magically cease to exist. He is just, and that means our sin must be punished. Instead, God takes them from us by transferring them to Jesus on the cross and judging those sins in the body of Jesus. This is what we call the atonement. As Jesus approached him, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. Now notice what uh, our verse in 2 Corinthians says. It says, Jesus became sin on our behalf. He did not become a sinner. The sins he bore were not committed by him. They were committed by us. Instead, our sins, and here's this word again, were imputed to him. They were reckoned to his account. And we call this the negative part of justification. God deals with this negative part of our problem, the sins we have committed. And if we could go to the next slide, there it is, expiation. This is a graphic that I'm borrowing from Dr. Wayne Grudem, and it just simply illustrates what we mean by expiation. The circles there represent an individual, you, me, any of us. 
The circle on the left-hand side, you'll see, contains a number of negative signs. Those negative signs represent this particular individual's sins. So before God has saved us, before this process of expiation, we have our sin. In the process of expiation, God takes our sins from us, imputes them to Jesus who deals with them on the cross. That means after expiation, we look like the circle on the right. The negative signs are gone. Our sins have been taken from us and paid by Jesus on the cross. The second part of justification, the part that we often neglect, and I want to bring to your attention this morning, is what we call imputation. In imputation, God gives us the righteousness of Jesus. This is the merit earned by Christ by faithfully fulfilling the entire law of the Old Covenant. Imputation is what we call the positive part of our justification. God deals with the positive part of our problem, which is the absence of our perfect righteousness. The circle on the, pardon me, if we go back to the previous slide, please. The circle on the right after expiation is empty. It doesn't include the sin anymore of this particular individual, but it also doesn't include the righteousness that the law tells us we need. We're neutral, in, in fact. After God has removed our sins, we are neutral. We no longer bear the guilt of sins committed in the past or those that we will commit in the future. However, we have not fulfilled all of the law in all respects. Jesus tells us that the entire law is summed up in two commandments. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, he says, Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer who was present and heard Jesus say this asked him, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus then told the story of the Good Samaritan. The point being that the neighbor is anyone who needs your help. So if the law involves loving our neighbor, which Jesus told us it did, and loving our neighbor involves helping him when he is in need, we have to love our neighbor, our neighbor is anybody who needs our help, then it is obvious that keeping the law in terms of loving others has two aspects to it. Number one, first of all, not doing evil to somebody else. Obviously, the bandits who beat up the man on the road to Jericho were not loving him. But number two, loving somebody also means doing good to others. The Good Samaritan loved the man who was in trouble by taking care of him and doing good to him. This same principle also appears in Matthew 25 when Jesus speaks of the judgment day. Those who enter the kingdom fed the hungry, gave water to the thirsty, invited in strangers, clothed the naked, and visited the sick. This is what we could call the positive part of law-keeping, doing good for others. Therefore, we need to be more than just neutral when it comes to God's law. Our law-breaking needs to be atoned for, definitely. We need to get rid of those negative signs. We need to get rid of that sin. But that's not enough. We also need to perfectly keep the law, both the do-nots and the do's. Again, I'll quote R.C. Sproul, who summarizes this very well when he writes, the cross alone, however, does not justify us. The cross alone, does, uh, the cross alone however, does not justify us. We need not only a substitute to pay for our demerits, but also a positive righteousness. We are justified not only by the death of Christ, but by the life of Christ. We are justified not only by the death of Christ, but also by the life of Christ. It would not have been good enough for Jesus to come down from heaven as an adult and immediately go to the cross and die for our sin. 
He needed to live a perfect life so that when he died, he was dying, first of all, for our sins, not his. And secondly, he needed to live a perfect life so that he could earn the merit of a perfect life or righteousness that could then be imputed to us. We actually sang it in one of our songs this morning. You laid down your perfect life. So whereas expiation is the first and negative part of justification, imputation is the second and positive part of justification. So if you go to the next slide now, so the circle on the left, the empty one, is the individual after the process of expiation. The circle on the right is what we look like after God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. We now have, our sin has been dealt with, and in God's sight, we have now the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me quote John Calvin from you. There's a little bit of a Reformation theme going on this morning. John Calvin, the famous reformer of Geneva, wrote this. Quote, a man will be justified by faith when, excluded by the righteousness of works, he by faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ, and clothed in it appears in the sight of God not as a sinner, but as righteous. Thus, we simply interpret justification as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as if we were righteous. And we say that this justification consists in the forgiveness of sins, expiation, and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, imputation, unquote. So in the time remaining, let me bring to your attention three important points regarding this imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Three important points. Number one, imputation is a reckoning or a crediting to our account. Imputation is a reckoning or a crediting to our account. The Oxford Dictionary defines to impute as to represent something as being done or possessed by someone. Wayne Grudem, who uh, I stole these uh, graphics from, puts it this way. When we say that God imputes Christ's righteousness to us, it means that God thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us or regards it as belonging to us. He reckons it to our account. Now, analogies of spiritual truths can always be a little bit dangerous and they eventually fall apart. But let me try to use one here to illustrate a little bit more by what this word imputation means. The imputation of Christ's righteousness is a little bit like someone depositing a large sum of money into your bank account. Don't get excited, it's hypothetical. So that when the bank manager now looks at your account, he sees this large sum of money. And now he either gives you a loan or he gives you a good credit rating or something like that. The bank manager sees those funds when he looks at your account and you benefit. But the funds aren't yours. Somebody else put them there. Another way to think of imputation is that we wear the righteousness of Christ like a robe. The idea of God clothing us, especially in the context of salvation, is very common in the Bible. We see it everywhere. Right back in the Garden of Eden, we see God providing clothing for Adam and Eve after they had sinned. Isaiah 64.10 tells, tells us the true state of our righteousness in terms of clothing. It describes our good deeds like this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Then in Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5, we read of God's remedy for this when providing a clean robe for the, Josh, for the priest Joshua, whose robe was filthy. 
In verses three and four of Zechariah three we read, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments representing his own righteousness and standing before the angel. He, being God, spoke to those standing before him saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, see I have taken your iniquity away from you, expiation, and will clothe you with festal robes, imputation. Can you hear the echo of Zechariah in the story of the prodigal son? When the father clothes the returned son with the best robe in the house? But perhaps the most relevant text in this regard, again, is from Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10, where it says, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And Paul himself also uses this type of imagery in the New Testament when he tells us in Romans 13, 34, that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So point number two, imputation is a reckoning or a crediting to our account. Pardon me, that was point number one. This is point number two. Imputation changes our status, not our nature. Let me say that again. Imputation changes our status, not our nature. I have to be very careful here because it's easy to be misunderstood, misunderstood by this statement. One of the sayings for which Martin Luther is famous is at the same time just and sinner. What Luther meant by this statement was that although God has declared us just, we still sin and therefore we are still sinners. So at the same time we're just and sinners. But how can this be? How can we be justified and sinners at the same time? Well, God sees us as just, but the grounds for that justification is the perfect righteousness of Christ, not our own imperfect righteousness. Now, I am not saying by this point that a justified person is an unchanged person. In fact, if we have saving faith, we are regenerate persons. And in that regeneration, our nature has in fact been changed. We read that in the verses this morning leading up to our text in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. We now have the ability to not sin, but we still sometimes choose to sin. Our nature has in fact been changed by regeneration, but that change does not result in immediate perfection. What I'm really getting at here is the difference between justification, what we've been talking about, and sanctification. Justification, like we said, is a one-time, immediate declaration of God that we are just, and it is grounded on the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to us. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a lifelong process by which we are becoming just. But God does not wait for us to achieve perfect righteousness before declaring us just in Christ. He declares us just based on the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. So although justification and sanctification are tied together, they are very distinct as well. A justified person will, in fact, go through the process of sanctification. But a person is not declared by God to be justified because he has gone through the process of sanctification. Recall Jesus' story in Luke 18 about the tax collector who went to the temple and prayed. He prayed for forgiveness. And what does the text say? It says he went home justified. He obviously did not become perfect in the time it took him to walk home from the temple. His justification couldn't, be, couldn't have been based on his own righteousness. 
This is one of the points where the reformers and the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation greatly differed. You see, the Roman Catholic Church could not agree with Luther's statement at the same time, just and sinner. For the Roman Catholic Church, a person cannot be justified until perfect righteousness inheres within that individual. The person must be inherently just before God can declare them as just. We'll return to this in a moment. So point number two, imputation changes our status before God, not our nature. Our nature is is changed by something else, regeneration. Point number three, the last point, the righteousness by which we are justified is an alien righteousness. The righteousness by which we are justified is an alien righteousness. Now what I mean by an alien righteousness is a righteousness that's outside of us or apart from us. You could also use the word a foreign righteousness. It is not a righteousness that is intrinsic to us or inherently belongs to us. The righteousness that justifies us was achieved and merited even before you and I were born. It really has nothing to do with us. It is the righteousness of another person, Jesus Christ. It was given to us by imputation and was not achieved by us. This conviction brought the reformers into conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church does not teach an imputed righteousness, but rather what they call an infused righteousness. The righteousness of God is not imputed to a believer, but rather infused into a believer. Well, what's the difference? Well, what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching was when we cooperate with the righteousness of God, we become inherently righteous. Our moral character is changed, and this is the ground for our justification. The Roman Catholic Church taught that we are not justified by an alien righteousness, but rather our own righteousness. You could say that the Roman Catholic Church mixed together justification and sanctification. And this was the crux of the debate between the reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. So can you now maybe a little better appreciate Luther's predicament when he struggled with his sin? Anyone who takes an honest look at his own righteousness, his own good deeds, will have no certainty of salvation if he is taught by the church that he is justified by his own righteousness. Even if he receives help from God in this endeavor by being infused with Christ's righteousness, there's no comfort there if it depends on us. The reformers rediscovered the good news of the gospel, totally free salvation in Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that this spread like wildfire? Third point, the righteousness by which we are justified is an alien righteousness. So what's the big deal? Why should we worry about this doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness? What does it mean to us? Well, earlier at the very beginning, I gave you two reasons, and I just want to come back to those in closing. Number one, we need to understand and defend the true gospel and all of the true gospel. Listen to Paul's admonishment to the Galatians in Galatians 1, 6, and 9. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We're going to look at two passages, just read them quickly. Galatians 1, verses 6 to 9 and then we'll skip over to Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Galatians 1, 6 to 9, Paul says to the Galatian church, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which 
was, which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And skipping over to the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Paul really gives it to him here. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh or your good deeds? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? For Paul, maintaining the true gospel was of paramount importance. Because you see, Paul understood the consequences of even a little bit of error. He says later in Galatians 5 verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. He knew what was at risk if the gospel was distorted. And we would also be wise to remember that the reformers risked much, including death, to stand up for and proclaim the truth of the gospel. We shouldn't take it for granted, and we should be prepared to defend it. For as the saying goes, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. We definitely don't want the church to go back to a time of darkness where the true gospel is not understood. So point number one, we need to understand and defend the true gospel. The second reason why the imputation of Christ's righteousness is important to us is this. The truth of Christ's righteousness imputed to us should be a significant source of comfort to believers who struggle with doubts regarding their salvation because of their sin. And I think if you're honest, if we're all honest, we've all been there at one point or another. We wonder, I've blown it for the millionth time. How could I be saved? How many of us trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our past sins but then going forward, we try to save ourselves with our own righteousness. Ever been there? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you by reminding you that if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, you have been justified by God. Past tense, it is finished and complete. God has declared you not guilty. And the grounds for that justification are one, Christ's death on the cross on your behalf, expiation. And two, the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you, imputation. Note that it is God in both aspects of our salvation who is at work, not us. Therefore, we can be sure of our salvation because it depends on God, not us. So the point of application I want to bring to you this morning is if your sin is getting you down, that's good. That's a good thing. But don't deal with it by trying to outdo your bad deeds with your good deeds. Recall what Isaiah 64.10 says, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Instead, deal with sin the right way. Confess it, repent of it, and trust in the truth that due to the great exchange, our sins being imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, that due to this great exchange, your sins are removed from you and you now wear the, per the robe of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, God sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus when he looks at you. He looks at you right now, and he sees perfection. He sees the perfection of Christ. And it is because God sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ when he looks at you 
that he accepts you and gives you eternal life. I pray this morning that your souls would find rest in this great truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with immense gratitude in our hearts for what you have accomplished on our behalf. We confess to you this morning that we were helpless, that we were dead in our sins, and yet you made us alive in Christ Jesus. You removed our sins. You put them on, the, on Jesus on the cross. You paid for them there, Jesus. And that you, Jesus, have given us your perfect righteousness, that we can stand before you now, here, just, even though we still sin. We thank you for this, and I pray, Lord, that you would bring this to our minds often, especially when we struggle with our sin. Teach us to confess, to repent, and then trust that it is Jesus' righteousness that saves us and not our own. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.